Welcome to the Sisters in Crime Writers Podcast. Everyone has a unique writing journey, so join us for conversations about those journeys from the writers themselves. Henrik is the Executive Director of Sisters in Crime, and I am delighted to welcome Frankie Bailey to the podcast today. Frankie Y. Bailey is a professor in the School of Criminal Justice at the University of Albany, SUNY. Her areas of research are crime history and crime and mass media, popular culture and material culture. Her books include Out of the Woodpile, Black Characters in Crime and Detective Fiction, and African American Mystery Writers. She's a McCavity Award winner and Edgar Anthony Agatha nominee for nonfiction. She's also the recipient of a George N. Dove Award for contributions to the study of crime fiction. Her own mysteries feature Southern criminal justice professor slash crime historian Lizzie Stewart, Albany police detective Hannah McCabe, and former World War II nurse, Army nurse, Joe Radcliffe. Her short stories have appeared in Ellery Queen magazine and in recent anthologies, including Down to the River, Midnight Hour, and Monkey Business. She's working on a nonfiction book about dress, appearance, and perception bias in American crime and justice, a historical thriller set in 1939, and the sixth Lizzie Stewart Mystery. Frankie's a past executive vice president of Mystery Writers of America and a past president of Sisters in Crime National. Her housemates include Fergus, a rambunctious but lovable cavalier, King Charles Spaniel, and Penelope, a tolerant, trilling Maine Coon rescue. Welcome to the podcast, Frankie. Thank you, Julie. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Well, I, I'm so looking forward to this conversation because I know you've, um, you know, we want to talk about Sisters in Crime and you were past president. And also, you're so involved in your chapter. But I want to start with um, your writing, uh, your writing journey. But also, I love how you dovetail all of your lives together. I mean, it's a really interesting bio and you're constantly doing that. You're constantly figuring out ways to have conversations that intersect with your um, university life and your writing life and, and life in general. And I really um, admire that and look forward to to the conversation because you and I have talked about this a few times and it's fascinating. fascinating a lot of stuff. it in the beginning happened by chance. And you know, in recent years, I've learned to look for those connections more vigorously than in the beginning when it just happened by chance. Well, let's, so let's get there and talk about it. Well, let's talk about that now. And then we'll talk about how you started on your writing journey. But when you talk about it happening by chance, were, did, did you separate your writing life and your professorial life? Um, In the you know, beginning, uh, when I was starting out as a young uh, assistant professor, I had no choice. I mean, it was all about getting tenure. And then after I returned to UAlbany, uh, I had a conversation with uh, the person, the faculty member who was dean at the time, and he gave me some good advice about not trying to write mysteries or crime fiction before it got in tenure at UAlbany, uh, because mm-hmm. I had to start over again when I came here. Uh, and so I took his advice, and so that delayed my return to fiction writing. Um, There's another story in between about my first two books, but we'll get to that. But when I was actually getting to the series, I actually put it off until I got in tenure here at UAlbany. Um, And that's a process. I mean, how long does it take to get tenure generally? Well, you go up, uh, you begin the process in your fifth year, and then you're going up in your sixth. And so it's it's about a a two-year, I mean, it's, it's from the beginning of the time when you become an assistant professor, all of those years leading up to it. So you don't have time to really focus on anything else because you need to really focus on your academic writing. Because my nonfiction, uh, my fiction writing was not counting uh, towards my vita at that point. It does now, but it didn't at that time. So, 
Was your was the advice because um, it, your mystery writing would take away from your no, your academic writing, or was it because it wasn't a serious pursuit that would support your your tenure? Well, both, and because coming up for tenure, you know, uh, there might have been the perception that I was going to get tenure and then retire on the job and write mysteries, uh, yeah. but also you know the fact that. There's this expectation that if you're a young assistant professor, that's all you're focusing on, that you're a serious pursuit of your occupation. And when you're in criminal justice, we are very serious about what we do. So the Absolutely. idea that I would also be doing uh, fiction writing when my areas were already crime history and mass media popular culture, I mean, that would have been a step too far, perhaps. <laughs> um, but it's all segued now, and we'll talk about that. Um, but, you know, let's talk about the fiction writing, and uh, because it is very different from academic writing. You know, I've talked to people who are technical writers or are grant writers and how you have to relearn and unlearn some of the things you do. Academic writing is very different than fiction writing. But when did you say to yourself, I want to write a novel. I'm a, I, I want to write fiction. I mean, was that as a small child or was that something that grew and then you put aside for a while? How, when did you sort of realize that you were a fiction writer? I always don't. Well, I spent a lot of time telling myself stories when I was a child, in my, not writing those stories down, but in my head. And then eventually, you know, I was in this English class with my favorite teacher and we were doing Shakespeare. And I was thinking, this is so great. And I was trying to write. Uh, and then I... This was very bad, but my poor parents, you know, I saw this ad in a magazine or in a match cover or something for a famous writer's school. It was a correspondence school, and I sent away for information, and the salesperson turned up at our door. And my, you know, much to my mother and father's surprise, they invited the man into the house and he was sitting there trying to sell them this correspondence course. And they were looking over at me like, are you crazy? I mean, what did you do? And then eventually, you know, they actually signed me up for this course. And so I actually took the short story fiction course that I never actually finished, but I still have the stories that I started and the comments from these famous writers who were you know, giving me comments about my stories. And then I went off to college and I was going to be a vet because I love animals. And But I ended up changing my major because I realized I didn't really like uh, organic chemistry and all the things I would have to do to get to be a vet. And Virginia, yeah. at the time, oddly enough, they were sending two students per year off to another state to go to, uh, because we didn't have a veterinary, we didn't have a school at Virginia Tech or any of the schools uh, that I might have gone to in Virginia. And so I ended up uh, eventually getting into psychology and English and coming full circle back to writing. And then um, when I actually, having this double major, you know, I actually ended up having a psychology uh, professor as my guidance counselor. And so when I went to him um, in my senior year at Virginia Tech and said, you know, I, I I, you know, it's my senior year, what am I going to do? You know, I haven't really thought about this. And he said, grad school. And I said, yeah, because it sounded great. You know, I really, I'm, I really didn't want to go out there and get a job. You know, it didn't sound yeah. like a fun thing to do. <laughs> and so uh, then I said, well, should I, what should I do? What should I get a PhD in? And he said, well, what did you like best? And I said, I just finished uh, an independent study in sociology on Bindstein bystander intervention and he said well have you thought about criminal justice and I said what is criminal justice and he said mm -hmm. he tried to explain it to me and it didn't really you know I didn't really get the full sense of what it was going to be about I thought it was going to be about you know people sort of sitting around you know talking about really interesting kind of cultural things about crime and justice and I was sort of thinking Sherlock Holmes and Agatha Christie and you know, somehow this is going to be some kind of you know, detective thing that we're going to do here. And I arrived at UAlbany uh, here, where I am now. Formerly, it was the State University of New York. But I arrived here and I had a lot of culture shock. 
because I didn't realize what I was going to be doing. But in between, I had joined the Army. And that was when I was a boot inspector uh, in the Army, stationed in Seattle, and I would come home every night and write. And that was when I wrote my first two novels, and they were actually romantic suspense. Heavy on crime, but romantic suspense, and I still have those, in fact. Um, and that was the beginning of my writing. And in between those two books and graduate school, um, I eventually, you know, because I was coming back to UAlbany, I had, in between that time, written a nonfiction book about uh, black characters in crime and detective fiction. And um, that was what I told them I was had done, you know, when they invited me back to UAlbany. And that was the start of my nonfiction research. And then eventually, after tenure, I came back to writing fiction again. So for our Did listeners... You that? It was a sort of convoluted. No, I followed it, and I can't wait to talk to you about the romantic suspense. But, um, but in between, for our listeners, can you um, explain what criminal justice is? Like, you know, how it's different than what you expected? Yeah, it's interdisciplinary, at least at UAlbany. In some places, people specialize in law enforcement or prisons, or they have special programs in those areas. But generally speaking, it's interdisciplinary. So, for example, uh, here I'm, uh, I have a PhD in criminal justice, but uh, my background in English and psychology, and uh, there are other people who have uh, degrees in economics, uh, psychology, sociology, political science, uh, economics, uh, and we all come together to look at uh, the three subsystems, policing, uh, courts, prisons. I'm on the margins because my principal areas are uh, mass media, popular culture, and crime history, and material culture. So I sort of, I'm more interdisciplinary than some of my other colleagues, but uh, mm -hmm. we all come together around those three subsystems where we're looking at uh, those major areas in criminal justice. And we approach them in different ways. Um, and we have students who are coming from almost uh, any background you could think of. Uh, they're not required to have a graduate, uh, undergraduate degree in uh, criminal justice. They can come from any background to get a PhD in criminal justice. Wow. So it must be some fascinating conversations. And I'm going to link in the show notes um, to your department because you will hold some really interesting symposia on a pretty regular basis that yeah. people should Most know about. Because I did a symposium um, with uh, crime writers of color. Wow. And talking about that. Um, uh, yeah. So that's an intersection we should talk about too, because you've been having these conversations from the criminal justice standpoint for a long time. Yeah. And we have, uh, within the School of Criminal Justice, um, a project going on looking at uh, diversity and inclusion. Uh, with It's called uh, Multiculturalism in the 21st Century. Uh, and I am actually the project director. We don't have any money for that right now, but I'm the project director. And so I was able to, under using wearing my other hat in criminal justice, uh, do the symposium, where I would never have been able to do it before. But now with this virtual thing we have going on with Zoom meetings, I can do it. I wouldn't have been able to do it before because I didn't have a grant and I couldn't afford to bring all those writers here. But yeah. with Zoom, I was able to reach out to people on both uh, out on the West Coast and in UK uh, and in other places and have audiences uh, coming from those places as well. Which is amazing. That's one of the benefits of, of the Zoom world is that you can have these richer conversations uh, with, with different participants and accessibility for both the participants and the audiences is much greater when it's online as opposed to in person. Yeah. 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 So, so interesting. I mean, we could, we could talk about this all the time, but I want to get back to romantic suspense. Um, why romantic suspense for those first two? Because I'd grown up uh, reading a lot of romantic suspense 
once I got into the library and began to browse, I just you know fell in love with Victoria Holt and Mary Stewart and Phyllis Whitney and all of those um, people you were know, writing at the time and. Every weekend, because I was sort of a nerd and I never got invited out on dates or anything, I would read romantic suspense. <laughs> you know, eat starlight peppermints and drink tea and read romantic suspense. And that was sort of my you know, um, way of you know, compensating for the fact that I was not out having you know, a good time like all the cheerleaders and the people I imagined who had these fabulous lives on weekends. <laughs> so... Uh... I, I, I suspect that there are a lot of writers who identified with that right now. Um, so did those two books ever get published? Are they in a draw still? Yeah, or, or in what a drawer still. And the fact, you know, I typed them. And the problem is, you know, I would have to try to scan. And I was going back and using whiteout and other things. And so scanning is going to be, I probably really have to type them again, you know, put them in a, into the computer before I can even begin to edit. I would know how to edit them now, but I'm trying to decide. I've been going with this, you know, do I really have the time to go through this process? But it would give me a head start on writing something. Uh, I do belong to Romance Writers of America, and I want to, again, qualify to be a professional romance writer. Uh, and so I'm going to, at some point, pull out those old manuscripts and try to get them published. Yeah, I, 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 if nothing else, will be an interesting uh, experience to reread early Frankie and, and you can probably fix things and change things because now you've written so many other books, you know what you're doing. And they're um, set in Seattle and I actually used that setting and, you know, so it would be a really interesting, I would have to probably leave them in the 1970s because some of the things, you know, like the lack of a yeah. cell phone and the other things that are so crucial to the plot and being able to hop on a plane and fly to England uh, is something, I mean, in the first book, you know, there was a kidnapping and the kidnapper actually takes the child and goes off on a flight to England. Never be able to do that again. So I would have to yes. leave that in the 1970s or 80s. But that's... Yeah, but that's, you know, happening. I mean, that's, you know, unfortunately, they consider that historical fiction at this point. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, crossing but, the Canadian you know, border, I mean, so easy at that point. I know, I know. It's, it's, uh, well, when you talked about typing, there are generations now who have no idea what it was like. Yeah, even to, what my electric typewriter right? seems like, yeah. you're looking back, I thought, yeah, you know, wow, this is great technology. I mean, now they don't even know what it is. I know, I know. And that you, I, I have the same. I have stacks of typewritten things that, um, you know, when you made an edit, you had to commit to the edit because you had to retype things. Even the things <laughs> on my early computers, I mean, I can no longer access those floppies that you know, yeah. were literally floppies. I, can't even, I don't even have a computer they won't fit into anymore. I know, I know. It's such, and, and in a relatively short amount of time, it has completely changed And that's the, world. the real problem right now, or at least it was for the first three of the Lizzie Stewart books that are now being uh, reissued by a new publisher. And, you know, they are, the first two were in software that could no longer access anymore. And so I was working from the manuscript and I had to go back and reading against the published book, go through the whole thing and oh. one line at a time. Oh, and this was right. only in 2000. I mean, you know. yeah, yeah, no, I mean, wow. That's a, that's when are they being re-released and who's the publisher? So I was so slow with the first two uh, speaking volumes. But, you know, they wanted to bring them out very quickly, one after the other. And it was really so slow because I was reading through and doing that by hand. So now we're up to the third book and uh, the editor has the third book and the cover's ready. And so that's going to be coming out quickly, followed quickly by the other two, because I had a better um, you know, version of those other two. Yeah. Wow. That's and then I mean, the new book would be after that. I mean, it's an exciting thing that there's a new one and that they're all being sent out again. I mean, that's a great thing for your readers. Yeah, particularly because, uh, you know, 
they've been there on Amazon, but they've been out of uh, the fourth book is out of print because that's so better than all the others. Uh, the other book, the fifth book, got almost no attention at all because at that point the imprint was no longer in existence. I was like their last writer and they were keeping me. Uh, it was It's a small press and actually they are a southern press and that's their focus. They had an imprint briefly with uh, Silver Dagger and then it was really you know, going to be a great little press for a while and you were working together as a consortium and you know things were going well but because it was a small press they just didn't have enough staff to bring out like one book a month and yeah. so you yeah. know I was the last of the people that they kept around which was good because they kept my book in print but still you know just in terms of you know that lag time between it's turned out to be good because now the Lizzie Stewart series is actually in 2004. So it's in the recent past. And then I have the other uh, book, the Hannah McCabe's, um, well, I say series, but two books in that series, uh, which is in the near future, which is now caught up with me. And so those books are in the alternate universe that I live in. And there are no books in the present, which is really good because I don't have to deal with the present. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and dealing with the present is, um, are you, you know, is it life in general? I mean, is it dealing with COVID? I mean, what, what, what do you mean by dealing with the present? Well, dealing with the present uh, in terms of the things you just mentioned, but also in terms of when I started out with the Hannah McCabe books, I set them in the near future because I didn't want, because I live in Albany. I want to use Albany history. I wanted to, for example, I wanted to have the mayor of Albany. Uh, and there, uh, I had a female as the mayor of Albany, a woman mayor that had never happened in Albany history. And then the treasurer uh, here in Albany uh, decided to run for mayor and she became the mayor. And so I needed I needed uh, deniability, and that was yeah. the reason I wanted to have this near future thing. But then the near future caught up with my present, and so my present is now an alternate universe. Uh, yeah. Luckily, when, when I was writing the books, I decided to have this kind of sci-fi twist, where um, particularly because I you know, thought I need something if I'm going to have this near future thing, and I also need to have, having looked at what some near future writers were sa saying about what they do, I wanted this twist, and so it, mm -hmm. aliens, uh, alien UFO appear over the sky in Las Vegas, and this was like um, the 9-11 for my characters. You know, there was the UFO that appeared uh, and then disappeared, and so they're waiting and hoping you know, these aliens will never come back again. Uh, and in the meantime, people have just gone on with their daily life. Uh, and so, you know, I have this twist in my uh, history in terms of what happened in the past, including this appearance of this UFO. And then I have this uh, police procedure where people are going along and doing what they would normally do. Except there are things that are uh, uh, references to near future and things that we did not have at the time when I was writing the book, but we do have now yeah. because the future caught up with me. Wow. Fascinating. Fascinating. Um, you also uh, write a, or, a historical series, right? Uh, the Lizzie Stewart, uh, Lizzie is a crime historian and she uh, studies the past and I draw on uh, the things that I have discovered and look at closely as a crime historian. Uh, and then in the Hannah McCabe series, those two books, I'm using uh, Albany history, the true history of Albany. In uh, the Joe Radcliffe, those two um, short stories that I hope will be uh, a series, uh, that's actually set in the 1940s. And then I'm working on the 1939 book, historical thriller. Ooh. Ooh, that's a different, uh, a different world as well. I know it's, uh, well, I mean, that's really taken like, you know, even once I had to plot, it's taken forever because I had to do the research for 1939 because there yeah. are people around who were still alive or were alive in the 1930s. Yeah. And there are people who know a lot about the 1930s, particularly that year leading up to the war. Yeah. 
for uh, Sisters in Crime members listening to this, uh, Frankie did a great webinar about uh, doing historical research uh, that's available in the webinar archives and it's highly recommended. But the, the research to do historicals is so overwhelming um, and, and the demand by the readers for accuracy is just another element in writing historicals that I think is daunting to a lot of people. Yeah, and in this case, I mean, I say a th historical thriller, but uh, it doesn't have the pace of the Da Vinci Code. It's a very slow thriller, uh, <laughs> and it, you know, because there are real life events that have to happen. Uh, it goes over the span of a year, and it starts uh, in February 1939 with the, well, maybe it starts in December 1968, depending on which character I start with, December the race again. Maybe it starts in December 1938, uh, because one of the characters uh, has an event that begins there involving her husband. Uh, and then she, when we pick her up again, she's in February 1939, and she's arriving in New York City while the uh, Nazi rally is going on at uh, Madison mm -hmm. Square Garden. Uh, and as she's leaving, as she's uh, going from uh, you know, where she arrives at the train station uh, and she perhaps not too wisely uh, accepts a ride from this woman who offers to give her a ride up to Harlem. Uh, and they're passing by and the woman says to her boyfriend what's going on there. And he says in passing, uh, there's a rally going on and the police have, you know, this encircle and uh, we can't, uh, he doesn't go into the details, but, you know, that's the background. Uh, and so I, you know, want to use that. And then I pick up, uh, the next thing that occurs is Marian Anderson performing at uh, the Lincoln Memorial on Easter Sunday. Uh, mm -hmm. And then I have the New York City World's Fair going on in June. And then I have Billie Holiday performing at Cafe Society. And then eventually in December, I get to four days uh, in Atlanta uh, with the premiere of Gone with the Wind. And that's where everything all comes together. And in between, I've got uh, this cast of three different groups of people moving through my year. And so it's really complicated and it's slow moving. Yeah. Yeah. But it sounds fascinating. I, and, and I love understanding that all of these things happen in the same time period and, and are interrelated, but they're also separate, but they're all part of the story. That's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, that was what fascinated me about it, because looking at 1939, there are so many things that come together at that moment. I mean, this is sort of a golden year for movies. It's, uh, you know, yeah. you, the, you've got Hitler, you're rising to power, and you've got you know, yeah. this ambassador. Um, and I just you recently began to think about this ambassador who was in Germany at the time when this rise was going on, he and his family. And there's uh, Eric Larson wrote uh, a book, nonfiction, but it reads like a novel about uh, this family being in Germany in 1933, 1934. And uh, his daughter you know, has inspired you know, one of my characters that I was looking for a role model and I happened to pick up this book by him that I bought and had read and you know, and there she was. And so I thought, you know, this is a great you know, inspiration for this woman that I need to have live in Germany and now be in the United States when in 1939 and be the uh, niece of a senator. Uh, and mm -hmm. that's going to be really important in terms of what happens. So where are you in this, in this, novel is writing you know are you are you do you plot so well this is a great way to talk about process what's your process like is it different for these different books i mean obviously research but have you plotted this whole thing or do you have bench you know signposts that you write towards or do you just you know pants it i mean it, because you're uh, his, you're writing you, so so much research goes into your books. I can't imagine you just write by the seat of your pants, but maybe you do. How, what's your process like? Usually I plot, uh, particularly with Lizzie, with the Lizzie Stewart series, because she's a crime historian, and she does what I do, and I do research. So I 
uh, in the first book, you know, Death's Favorite Child, I was going to meet a friend of mine who was uh, stopping in Cornwall, England, before she and her son, um, her young son at the time, he's, God help me, he's an adult now, he's a Navy pilot. <laughs> he's, this tells me I'm old because he was like six years old when I wrote the first yeah. book of the series. And he was actually the role model, the role um uh, let me rephrase that. He was the inspiration for what I was writing. I had the six-year-old boy in the uh, in the story, and I needed. I said to her, "Can I use your son, you know, as the uh, your character, you know, in reality, yeah. uh, you know, because I knew nothing about children?" And she said yes. And so, you know, I was writing this book, um, and I was actually there in Cornwall. I she was coming from Scotland. I flew into London. I was doing research in London and walking through what Lizzie would do in London. And then I caught a train. I was riding in the train. What am I seeing on the train? You know, this lovely man uh, from Scotland. He, I think he actually was wearing a kilt when he got in the train. And this hound dog. And I was in the smoking car. What did I know? You know, I was in the smoking <laughs> car. And he and the dog sit down and they both were taking a nap. And I was writing notes about this. And that turns up in the book. And then I was in Cornwall and I was writing and I was trying to figure out because I said to um, you know my, I belonged to a writing group at the time I said to my writing group after five years of trying to write my first book I said I'm going to take my two characters Lizzie and Quinn who was supposed to have been like the small town you know police chief and ended up being a homicide detective from um, Chicago when because I when I was in Cornwall I was walking along and my friend Joy, um, you know who's on her way to Finland for a Fulbright Fulbright um, scholarship that year, uh, I was talking to her and I said I need to figure out where the police station is because I want to go and talk to someone about uh, policing in Cornwall, in Saint Ives this uh, village where it's an audit. If you know uh, it's called Saint Regis in my book but it's actually Saint Ives. Uh, and I wanted to go and talk to someone there and find out about your know, British policing. And so she saw this police officer walking by. She said, there's someone, you, there's a police of officer, run and grab him. And so I went running over. I said, I'm a writer. And, you know, where do I find a police station? And he started talking to me and the guy had a Chicago accent. It was like, what are you doing here? He said, I'm an American. I said, what are you doing here? And he said, you know, my wife is Scottish, and I retired to you know, St. Ives, and I'm a special police officer in you know, the summer. And he directed me to the police station, and you know, there was taking notes, and you, know, and this lovely police inspector said, "Well, we rarely have a murder in St. Ives," and I said, "Well, I'm going to change the name of the place, and you'll have a murder. You'll, uh, <laughs> I know, you know, and you know, people know about you know, this." St. Oz might know, but otherwise. Um, but I was writing um, a book inspired by Agatha Christie. I wanted to have um, a cozy, a closed circle of suspects uh, in this mm -hmm. hotel, this private hotel where we were staying. And so there I very carefully plotted out everything that was going to happen so I could write as I was going on. After that, in the other two books, I was um, Lizzie... Um, Ended up in Gallagher, my fictional town, which uh, is actually Danville, Virginia, my hometown. Uh, mm -hmm. And so I wanted to use that background, that history. But Lizzie travels uh, because I didn't want to have a kind of Jessica Fletcher thing where, you know, every where you know, I would have all of these you know, murders happening in my hometown. So it's uh, it's an academic mystery series where she is traveling and going places and doing things. And so I'm actually plotting and looking and doing research because I don't really have a good sense of place unless I actually go there. I need to mm -hmm. go there to do the research. And that's in terms of setting. I do that. And actually, I'm walking through what Lizzie would do, what I would do as Lizzie. And so, for example, in the fourth book, uh, You Should Have Died on... Monday, I actually went to Chicago because her mother, Lizzie was looking for her mother, so I went to Chicago. I had a lawyer friend 
there and he actually um, took me to the settings, that places that I might use the settings. I had a drive-by shooting and we went there and I stood on the corner and figured out how the shooting would occur. Wow. Um, and we found this um, building that I could use as a location for my nightclub in 1968. Uh, and then I was off to Wilmington, North Carolina because Lizzie went there. And then I was off to pre-Katrina, New Orleans, uh, mm -hmm. because that was where Lizzie's mother ended up. Uh, and so yeah. with all of the settings I use, uh, for example, in the Hannah McKay series, uh, the Near Future series, I went out to uh, Stanford University uh, because I needed to, they actually offer um, an opportunity for people visiting a university to come and see how virtual reality is done. And I wanted to walk through that. Wow. Uh, and so I used that in my book. But so any place where I can go, you know, where I can go and actually see the location, yeah. I do it. Um, yeah. And yeah. in the 1939 book with the New York World's Fair, um, I actually am going to, when I have a chance, you know, go down and take the tour. Uh, the 1964 World's Fair was also there. So some of the things are left over from 19, 19, 1939 and 1940 and from 1964. But mainly I just need to see the location. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I can only imagine you wish you could time travel back yeah. <laughs> and see it in 1939. I know, I know. Yeah, I mean, your research will get us close, but man, yeah. I mean, there are things yeah. I would like to see. I because my protagonist, one of my protagonists, is actually a sleeping car porter, um, and you know, in terms of the sleeping car itself, I can read the description, I can see the diagram. Uh, I know that, in once the war began, they changed the material that the car yeah. was made. Excuse me, the car was made out of. Um, and, but I can't actually find a 1939 sleeping car that I can walk through. And I really, yeah. really want that experience of walking through yeah. the 1939 sleeping car. I have the yeah. description, I have the ads, I have some people who are traveling by those sleeping cars, but I've never been able to walk through it. And so I'm yeah. going to keep looking for you know, people who are um, you know, experts on, because there are lots of people who are experts on that, but I want, uh, and in fact, this Sunday, uh, there's a convention for train enthusiasts, um, and I'm going to the train convention here in Albany and see if I can find some people with, you know, may actually have a diagram or you know, a train that they built where I can see better how that 1939 train looks. So what, what strikes me? <clears throat> whenever you and I talk is how curious you are about things. And then in this conversation, you're, how your curiosity drives your stories. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, many people could think about 1939, but they're not going to think about a slow-moving thriller with all these points of view and everything else. Um, what, what do you, why do you think you put things together in this, um, in this crime writing genre, what, what, why do you enjoy writing and researching and, and, you know, being part of this genre? What, what about it, um, is, draws you in? Well, you know, of course, because I'm in criminal justice, it's natural for me to write in this area, but I do in wearing my other hat, you know, writing nonfiction. I've, uh, with a colleague, we were editing, um, a series of, encyclopedias uh, about famous true crimes and trials. And so, you know, I have that background. Wow. Uh, I have the real life background of having uh, with one of my colleagues uh, who was actually one on my committee when I was getting my dissertation. When I came back, he was still here. It took me forever to learn to call him by his first name. Uh, <laughs> but he invited me to be involved in some research he was doing, uh, looking at stress and policing. Uh, the police department had invited us in. I had the opportunity. My charge in the research uh, was to actually do ride-alongs with female police officers and their partners. So right. I had that. But I really loved the research. And 
you know, when I look at what I do, I am very interdisciplinary in terms of my own research. Uh, mm-hmm. And because I do that, you know, I'm watching movies, I'm reading crime fiction, I'm doing uh, research on clothing and appearance. Yeah. Uh, and all of that comes together for me. And my background in English and psychology, that's what I brought to criminal justice. And so, you know, I all of that comes together for me. And I watch, because I do mass media, uh, my television is on. Anytime in the house, my television's on, all that's passing by. I'm watching movies all the time. And so it just comes together uh, because I just like putting the puzzle together, seeing how things come together. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. Fascinating. Um, You talked a little bit about your publishing journey and and, uh, things getting uh, reissued. What do you wish you'd known early or in your career, your fiction writing career about publishing? I wish I'd known more about marketing because I was coming from nonfiction publishing, from academic publishing, where, you know, I knew nothing at all. Of, this is how easy it was at the time to get published in nonfiction. It's still easier to get a nonfiction book published, I think, than fiction. Uh, but I didn't need an agent, didn't need uh, any connections at all in nonfiction. If you're an academic, you, you write that proposal, you send it out to uh, editor. And I had finished my dissertation. I was living in Frankfort, Kentucky. Frankfort is a lovely small town. The capital's there. But I had nothing to do. And I you know, decided I wanted to write a book uh, about something. Uh, and I thought, well, you know, I probably should do something nonfiction because I might you know, want to look for a job and I might need something on my beta. And so I went to the library and looked for things in crime fiction that no one had written about. And no one had written about black characters in crime fiction, you know, a book where yeah. you're doing this kind of systematic study. So I wrote the book. And then I thought, well, I've written a book. What do I do now? And so I went to the library and looked up, up how do you get a book published? And you know, uh, and I was looking at nonfiction. It was about, it said, you send a proposal out to publishers. And I did that, and I sent it out to, like, three publishers. And two of the three were interested because uh, no one, you know, they saw this was something that no one had done before. Yeah. And then I wrote the manuscript, I sent it out to them, they gave me edits, and that was how I got the book published. And then I had nothing to do after that uh, other than you know, prov- provide information, you know, background information, you know, the kinds of things that publishers use to market the book. Mm-hmm. But I didn't need to get in the, in the marketing, into the process of marketing, because um, I was not going to be out there signing books, uh, you know, in bookstores. I was not going to be on Amazon. I was not going to be doing any of the things we do now. And so, you know, it was a surprise to me when I, you know, tried to do something in fiction that now I needed to look for, you know, a publisher by finding an editor, an agent, all of the things we do. I mean, that was a real surprise. I wish I'd known about that in advance so I could have thought more about how to market. Uh, mm-hmm. Even though I had the advantage with the of coming in with, uh, luckily, with uh, Over Mountain, uh, because they brought us together as this kind of consortium. So I was working with people who, know, who knew much more about this than I did at the time. But I wish even now I'd known more about that because I would have looked at ways to... Um, you know, actually bring some of what I was doing as in terms of my research, I would have looked for a way of bringing that into, um, you know, the marketing that I was doing for the book. Yeah. Yeah. The branding, the author branding, um, you know, incorporating and having these conversations about this so that you're supporting all of your writing Mm -hmm. um, instead of a series at a time or a book at a time, because, you know, people will know Frankie Bailey and then they'll be able to be of interest or find things and connect. And luckily, you know, I've had I went back after the fact and redid my website, and you know I had a I have a really great web Max. I've never met him in person, but he's uh, you know uh, he's yeah. great. But uh, we talk on the telephone every now and then. But you know he re- he actually let me redesign and 
he actually uh, has uh, a website that he is actually working with romance writers, and that's how I found him. But I'm his, one of his standalones. Uh, and so you know, we, over the years, have gone back to try to redesign the website. Uh, and you know that website now reflects this kind of uh, connection that I found yeah. between nonfiction and fiction. And you know, my tagline is, every crime deserves context, which works for both. Yeah. And I've divided yeah. the website up into um, nonfiction and fiction, and I'm showing the overlap there. But I still have and a lot my- of things in my closet, you know, that I could have used that I should be incorporating more in terms of, you know, marketing the Lizzie books, for example. I have all the research that yeah. I did that I could actually have on my website. And, right. you know, for the nonfiction books, I could bring over more of the fiction in terms of what I'm doing. But it's a matter of going back and doing it and finding the time to bring all that together. Yeah, well, it's a huge canon of things, too, that you have um, because you've had a long career. Yeah. Um, Now, you mentioned earlier that you did a symposium with the Crime Writers of Color uh, group, and uh, we've talked about them a few times on the podcast. Well, I should say when I I talk about this, uh, the Crime Writers of Color were not sponsoring the group. I want to make that clear. It was a part of the... um, so uh, it was a part of the School of Criminal Justice, uh, Justice and Multiculturalism in the 21st Century. Uh, and so I was doing that uh, as a part of wearing my hat as an academic. And I invited you know, people uh, that you know, I had encountered as a part of um, Crime Writers of Color and what uh, your people have been doing there and said, mm-hmm. would you be kind enough to come and be a part of these panels? So Crime Writers of Color is four or five years old at this point um, uh, and has made a huge change in the in the community and in the publishing world. Um, we, Sisters in Crime, has done uh, um, some work and we have a list of, of books and authors uh, that is nicknamed uh, Frankie's List um, and after you. And I have to give you. Eleanor Taylor Bland credit for you know, this idea yeah. you know, uh, long before anyone thought of bringing us together she was out there pushing you know, to get us together and she actually had you know I found the written list of authors that she did by hand and you know copied and said this was in the old days you know, before we could actually be online yeah. but I mean social media has made such a difference but you know that's I give her credit for actually pushing in the early days when it was much harder to get us together. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we uh, only came together for the first time at a BouchaCon, uh, where we were you know, meeting for the first time, and this was in the late 1997, I think it was at the time. Uh, but you, we had been communicating by you know, the t- primitive technology available yes. to us at the time. And she... I, you know, was also a mentor for so many people. She yes. comes up in so many conversations as such an important person uh, in the crime writing history, uh, you know, for so many reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you I mean, know, she was we, there at the beginning with Sisters in Crime National. Yeah. Uh, when yeah. I was living in Kentucky at the time, I was actually going to Dark and Stormy Night, the conference that they were having. Uh, and that was how, it, at the time, I wasn't writing fiction. I was uh, doing, trying to line up interviews for my uh, other woodpile. Uh, I was trying yeah. to meet writers. And so that was how I started with Mystery Writers of America. And she was around there because she was a member of that chapter. And wow. so, yeah. Yeah. No. Do you think that um, things are better for crime writers of color right now or uh, you know it are they i think publishing is is having a conversation and is opening things and we've got all kinds of publishing paths but are you optimistic about the future or or the way things have changed or, or are you still um well, I'm not going to say still because I don't know if you've been, but it's it's this has been a long journey <laughs> um, for crime writers of color to have the opportunities um, uh, of uh, that 
that white authors have automatically. Um, and, you know, it's never easy for anybody to get published, but there have been additional barriers and additional barriers to telling a story that resonates with them as writers. Um, so do you think that things are better, different, changing? Are you, you know, how are you feeling about how things are right now? I think we have more viability right now. I think, you know, there was a period in the 1990s when there was, uh, you know, this sort of renaissance. People were, because, you know, looking back at the early writers like Chester Hines and then you have this, people are not around. And, well, in Urban Street Lit, which is a really interesting genre. But then, you know, there are very few Black writers being published. And then Walter Mosley comes along, and then you get Eleanor mm-hmm. and Gary Phillips and Gareth and Hayward, and, you know, those people who were publishing then. And then there's this period when not much is happening. And then the new technology comes along. I think, you know, and then we have a lot of young writers who are really out there and are really smart about how they're marketing and what they're doing. And they're learning and, you know, actually applying that. And the technology allows uh them to do that and it brings mm-hmm. us old veterans along too because we're able to you know, learn from them in some ways about how to market and what to do and also i think because there's more crossover reading you know uh, there's a larger mm-hmm. white audience willing to cross over and read writers of color and yeah. we have writers writing in all the such genres so you know, in cozy and uh, thrillers and historical and you know they're winning awards and really you're getting name recognition, which is good because when I, even uh, when, you know, after I came with my sequel with uh, African-American crime writers uh, back in the early, what was it, 2009, 2010, uh, there were, you know, when I did this poll of Darfi L. readers, uh, and, you know, after I listed, you know, crime writers of color, African-American writers, and, they knew and had read Chester Hines and Walter Mosley. And then after that, there was a real fall off in terms of mm-hmm. people that they had actually read. And this is no, I'm not bashing your Darfiel readers. These were really you know, mystery yeah. people were reading a lot of mysteries, but they just hadn't been exposed to those writers because you know, if you were browsing the bookstore, uh, these writers, writers who were writing, uh, African-American writers might not be in the mystery section. And this is still an issue. Uh, If you're writing and you're writing a writer of color, if you're you're writing uh, any of the marginal, so-called marginal writers in a sense of not being mainstream until recently, you might find that you're not really going to be in that section uh, in the bookstore, in the library, because you may have only one book and, um, if you're not Walter Mosley, Walter is so good, it gets to be everywhere. But other writers, you know, it's the question of where you're going to be in that bookstore. And you may be placed in the African-American section, or the gay and lesbian section, or you know, Hispanic section, or something else where uh, you're not uh, being mainstream in terms of mystery writers. And that can be a problem. Um, yeah, because that affects how many readers you're going to reach who are browsers and, and doing things. Um, and it's sure. true also in libraries. And there's a reason. I mean, I talked to a librarian once who you know, talked even there, you know, that they have a choice about where they're going to place the book. And if you're looking at your readers, uh, if you're readers of color who may be looking for your book and you know, they may not look in mysteries and they may discover you if you're in that section where you're they're looking for books, but it also means that the mystery readers uh, may not discover you because they're not looking. So it's a kind of catch 22 about where you're going to be. And so, you know, the ability to go out and be on Twitter, to be on Facebook, to be Instagram, you know, to use that technology and say, my book is coming out and, you know, here's uh, the book and this is what it's about. And this is where you can find me. And this is where you can read a section of my book. That's, really huge in terms of getting the message out there and also you're going to conferences and being visible there yes absolutely absolutely i mean i think uh for all the challenges around social media the fact that we can build communities and use a hashtag that can reach other people Mm -hmm. uh, is tremendously important i mean there's a lot of noise but then you get um people who support each other so it's also 
retweeting people or amplifying other things or, you know, just spending some time every day liking posts and retweeting them and doing everything else to help help it get a higher profile. I mean, that's if you're a reader who loves a certain writer help amplify right. their voice in social media so it doesn't get lost. And I mean, Sisters in Crime, it's terrific with that. I mean, you have Sisters National, you have the chapters, the members of the chapter, you have the readers, terrific. And of course, you can do things like virtual tours now, which is another thing. You know, that's really, yeah. I mean, even before Zoom, you know, I did that with, um, when I had The Red Queen Dies coming out because it was a book that was, uh, well, was a large publisher for the first time, St. Martin's, but also because I didn't, because I have a day job, I did not have the ability to go out and you know, do yeah. the kinds of things I'd like to do in terms of marketing. Uh, so, you know, that was really great. And also because it was at the sci-fi angle of, in terms of the tour I was doing, some of the stops I was making on websites were with you know fantasy and sci-fi you know, writers who were had real influence with their readers, and so I got a bit of a crossover with that, which is amazing. I mean, and and so you know, it's it's it, we talk about this historical readers and mystery readers and historical mystery readers. Like you, you meet in the middle, but your historical mystery also will be read, read by people who like historical fiction. I mean, it's just being in different genres and, and having hybrids opens up the opportunity for your it's readership It's not so tricky, well. though, as my you know, agent yeah. pointed out on a panel and when they were discussing this, you know, uh, because sometimes readers don't know what category you're going to fall into. So when the Red Queen dies, you know, I had this near future at the time, and I think it was well, 20, I have to think about this, 2018 when the book was coming out, the book was set in like 2020. Uh, so it was the near future and this alternate you know, universe kind of thing. But, you know, uh, at least one reviewer you know, was reluctant, really like my Lizzie Stewart series, but was reluctant to dip into this book. She confessed because she wasn't sure what she was getting into, whether it was going to be a mystery or a straight police procedure because of the sci-fi twist. And then, so it's getting, there's a problem of getting mystery readers to follow along with you if they like your yeah. mystery series or getting yeah. the, the sci-fi readers were, uh, you're willing to dip into this because of the sci-fi angle, this UFO, and they like the books, but not all the mystery readers were going to go with me there. And so I don't think you know, I carried some of them along as audience. Yeah. But I picked up yeah. some sci-fi readers. And Which that's always the problem. And then also, where is the book going to be located in the bookstore? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Such a huge part of you know, how, how do people find it? Which is for sure. Um, yeah. So, um, you were president of sisters in crime after being EVP of MWA, a very different organization in terms of board of directors and other things. Yeah. Um, can you, as we're, as sisters in crime is moving towards its 35th year. Um, can you talk a little bit about what sisters in crime has, uh, you know, meant to you? I mean, I know you're still active in your chapter as well, um, very active in your chapter, um, you know, and, and you know, how it's played a role. I guess I've been thinking about this, you know, uh, obviously it's played a, a huge role because it's been around you know, as long as I've been writing, but um, I think the thing that it did was bring me together with sisters because I was... At MWA, I love MWA dearly. It's a different type of board, um, and it's uh, very old, uh, very important in terms of the genre. But with Sisters in Crime, uh, it's uh, what happens when women come together. We have brothers, of course, but it's what happens when women come together. You know, that kind of sharing, a kind of nurturing thing that happens with women. Uh, that it was, it's great to have be able to email a sister and say this is going on and have her understand that as a woman, uh, even yeah. though my brothers are great and I love them, you know, the sisters, the that's something different that I had not experienced until I became a member of Sisters in Crime. Yeah. 
No, it's it's true, and it started as an advocacy organization, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and I think that 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 those roots are also really important to the organization and remain important to the organization. And of course, Sisters in Crime is really great in terms of the open. It's very open to uh, not only writers but readers. Everyone has a role they can play, something they can do, something that can bring us together, uh, mm-hmm. and. Uh, just in terms of you know, the journals, the uh, other things, the marketing, the webinars, all of those things that are available to people and that you can you know, tap into and do it at your leisure so you don't have to be there nowadays to actually do it. You can actually come and you know, take what you need and go out and people are uh, there and willing to answer questions and help you, you know, connect you with other people, which is really great. Which is really great. Well, Frankie, thank you for this great conversation and thank you for uh, all you've done for Sisters in Crime. And I can't wait to read this 1939 book. So no pressure, but. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I was supposed to have gotten through uh, national novel in a month. And this is my second time around trying this. And I have failed again because I decided I restructured the book as I was writing. And because I outlined it to stop and outline. And so now I'm going to try December and hopefully in December I'll finish the book. Well, you're also a professor. I mean, you do have a day job that is not small. So Yeah, and this is actually end of semester, so... Yeah, which is not yeah. a pretty time. Yeah, but it's. Uh, I'm grateful that you're writing and um, grateful for this conversation. Yeah. Thank you so Thank you much. for inviting me. Thank you for being with us today. Sisters in Crime is about community. We were founded to advocate for women crime writers, and we continue that mission by fighting for equity in the crime writing community. Sisters in Crime is an international, inclusive organization for all who write and love crime fiction, mystery, thrillers, and suspense. Join us at sistersincrime.org and make sure you subscribe to this podcast.